they're delicious. <laughs> I, I, there's two, there's two people, there's two types of people who study oysters, those who think they're delicious and those who call them their friends and won't eat them. So I'm in the, I'm in the former camp. I'm Dr. George Walbusser and I'm an assistant professor at Oregon State University in the College of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. Welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Samantha Thomas. The voice you heard at the top of the show belongs to Dr. George Waldbusser. Dr. Waldbusser has a big paper out in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, and he joins us to talk about the incredible, edible, friendly, and delicious oyster. <laughs> and that's right. Oysters have been friends to people, and especially hungry people, for millennia. But for a number of reasons, including pollution, over-harvesting, and disease, the number of oysters living today is much smaller than in the past. Dr. Waldbusser's paper, A Developmental and Energetic Basis Linking Larval Oyster Shell Formation to Acidification Sensitivity, provides a cool and novel understanding of one of the issues facing oysters. Before we get to that, however, let's have Dr. Waldbusser tell us where baby oysters come from. (laughs) Most oysters are what we call broadcast spawners, and so what that means is they broadcast their gametes, the sperm and the eggs, into the water column, and they leave sort of fate fate to uh, ensure that fertilization occurs. And so uh, the triggers for the spawning usually are related to temperature quite frequently, and that's taken advantage of in oyster hatcheries. But in the wild, the gametes go into the water, fertilization begins, um, eggs fertilized, it takes... Uh, about 12 hours for the egg to develop into what we call a trochophore, which is sort of a swimming, semi-swimming stage um, of the larvae. And then from about 12 hours to 24 hours is when that larvae builds its first shell and becomes uh, what we call a veliger. And at that point, it's called a veliger because it has a velum, which is a combined feeding and swimming appendage. Then that larvae will live in the water for two to three weeks or sometimes longer or shorter, um, and then it looks for somewhere to settle. Um, at settlement size, when it gets to about a certain size, it starts looking uh, for somewhere to go. Typically, selecting uh, other oyster shells is kind of the preferred habitat for, for oysters. It'll uh, swim down from the water column, and we start to develop into what we call a pedivelager, which is simply a foot swimmer. And so it has a small sort of foot that it can feel around. And actually there's a fair bit of work that shows that they can actually detect differences in substrate and chemicals. And once it finds a a good home, it metamorphoses, which means it goes from this pet to uh, 
essentially the, the beginnings of the adult stage where it'll glue itself down to the substrate, um, sort of become flat in that sense where it's no longer kind of looks like a little clam in the water and then it starts growing into adult. Um, and then it's usually, depending on the species, it can be anywhere from two years to four to five years uh, for that organism to be reproductively uh, competent again and then it will reproduce and start to cycle over. So by about 12 hours after fertilization, oysters are shellless and semi-free swimming trochophores. About 12 hours after that, oysters begin to form a shell and become veligers. They stay like that for up to a few weeks until they reach a certain size, and then they float down the water column looking for a place to settle. Once settled, oysters may take three to five years to fully mature. That's a fair amount of variability, and it turns out that this variability is not only on the adult side of things. Immature oysters can see their growth and development slowed as well. And there are a lot of factors that can contribute to changes in oyster growth. Things like temperature and food are really important. Uh, certainly things like stressors in the environment, so other pollutants, um, low oxygen, high CO2, all those sorts of things have the potential to affect the growth rates of these organisms because they have to allocate resources to deal with those stresses in some way. Um, versus putting that into growth and eventually the reproductive growth of developing the reproductive organs. A phrase Dr. Wadbusser used in that clip was stressors in the environment. Stressors in the environment have the potential to affect the growth rate of these organisms because the oysters have to allocate resources to deal with these stresses. As you might imagine, that's an important point. Definitely. You can imagine if there's a situation where there are limited resources and a big environmental stressor, you might see oysters having significant problems. <laughs> that sounds like foreshadowing. But before we get there, let's first introduce a big challenge, a big stress inducer for oysters, acidification. The term acidification um, is, a, is a tough one at times for people to understand because we think about pH as basic and acidic quite frequently, and acidification is simply the process of moving pH from a more basic solution to towards a more acidic solution. And so when we talk about ocean acidification, what we're talking about generally is the increase in atmospheric CO2 from uh, fossil fuel combustion and cement mixing, or cement making, which has increased uh, atmospheric levels of CO2, which has turned the ocean into a sink of CO2, and so approximately 25 to 30 percent of that CO2 that's produced from fossil fuels ends up in the ocean. In that process of that CO2 being essentially pushed into the ocean because of that gas gradient, it reacts with water and forms what we call carbonic acid. Through that process, it generates protons or, or hydrogen ions, which is where the pH decreases, and it also consumes carbonate ions, which is part of the inorganic carbon system in seawater. As Dr. Waldbusser noted, the problem of acidification is greatly exacerbated by the use of fossil fuels. So unfortunately, this is a problem that isn't going to go away. However, the causes of global climate change are not the only causes of acidification. There are other factors that might acidify an oyster's environment too. When we look into an environment, there's a number of other processes like primary production and respiration, which both uh, consume CO2 and release CO2 that can alter the sort of baseline or background chemistry conditions. And so we, we've seen and we've documented uh, losses of oyster production in oyster hatcheries here in the Pacific Northwest due to elevated CO2. 
and that elevated CO2 is in part from the increase in atmospheric CO2, but also due to these other natural processes that occur in the ocean. These non-atmospheric causes of acidification are not localized to the Pacific Northwest either. Dr. Waldbusser worked on acidification in the Chesapeake Bay and found other anthropogenic causes, including nutrient loading or nutrification, to be important. So right now we have oysters on one hand and acidification on the other, and all too often, acidification wins. Oyster larvae often die because of acidification. Sad. There are a lot of ways acidification can hurt an oyster, but there's one big way that a lot of earlier research focused on. A lot of the focus of ocean acidification research has been um, looking at essentially dissolution of calcium carbonate and the inability or, the, or how that, the inability of organisms to make calcium carbonate. So a lot of the, a lot of the focus has been on something we call saturation state and um, how readily the minerals that uh, these organisms make dissolve, which is a function of the saturation state. Um, there's a whole lot of other physiological work that also indicates that things like internal acid-base status and so how well the organisms are able to control the pH of their own blood might vary with uh, changing ocean chemistry, which has a whole suite of other potential impacts. But particularly for the oyster larvae, um, you know, a lot of the concern was really about dissolving oyster larvae. And what was striking was when we did the work looking at the records in the oyster hatchery from Neetarts Bay, and we published a paper that Alan Barton was the lead on, who's a, a hatchery manager there. What was striking was that a lot of the effects we saw and a lot of the chemistry was really in conditions that weren't thermodynamically corrosive for calcium carbonate. In other words, the CO2 wasn't high enough to make the shells actually dissolve. Um, and so that was something that helped motivate and try to, us to understand more precisely what actually was happening and why the larvae were failing in the hatchery. So what happens in more extreme cases of acidification is that a larval oyster, struggling to make it in the world, trying to develop its first shell, will see that shell dissolve just as quickly as it can be made. That's horrifying. Yeah. It's the stuff of oyster nightmares. But as Dr. Waldbusser notes, it's not the only reason oyster larvae fail which doesn't make it any better, I guess. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Oyster larvae can fail even when acidification is too modest to make shells dissolve. So what's happening? That was the subject of Dr. Waldbusser's most recent paper. Well, what we, what we tied it to was sort of tying together some things that we've already known about oysters, uh, oyster larvae in terms of um, aspects of their early biochemistry and, and development. But then tying that together with, uh, instead of thinking about the thermodynamics of the mineral, which is uh, basically tells you whether or not a reaction will occur. And so we talk about saturation state. We use a number of one for a given type of calcium carbonate mineral. And if it's below one, it means that the conditions will dissolve the shell. If it's above one, it means that the mineral will precipitate. It doesn't speak to all at all about the rate at which those processes happen. And so what we did was look at um, the biochemistry of the organism, some of which we already known, and looking at um, stable isotopes also to look at, understand what's essentially happening during this early period of the initial shell growth. And so what it turns out is the rate at which they have to build the shell during that first 24 hours is much more rapid than the rate that they have to do that later on. And they have to do that when the energy is limited because they haven't yet developed a feeding organ or the velum that I mentioned earlier. 
And uh, during that shell development, what the stable isotopes told us was that they also appear to be less able to isolate and control the calcification process. So they're essentially more exposed to the ambient chemistry. So 24-hour old oyster larvae have a limited amount of energy available. Because they haven't developed a feeding mechanism and are still living off the egg. Mm -hmm. And a limited ability to control the use of the energy they do have available. When the acidity of their environment is cranked up, making a shell might become more difficult, might take longer, and might cost more energy. And if you only have a limited amount of time and energy available, that can be fatal. And even a little bit more lethality can be a big deal for oysters. Like a lot of creatures in the wild, oysters aren't very good at surviving childhood. Fortunately, this curse is something of a blessing because a mechanism for promoting the survival of oyster larvae already exists. Hatcheries. On, on average, you could say that 99% of oyster larvae die in the wild. And that's true for most uh, benthic invertebrate type organisms that have lots of reproductive output. So, uh, so a Pacific oyster or, or many of the Chrysostria species, the eastern oyster as well, they can produce 10 to 20 million, a female can produce 10 to 20 million eggs. So just one female can, in theory, produce 10 to 20 million offspring. They, most of those, uh, even in the hatchery, a large number of those won't survive, but they still get uh, much higher survival. Essentially what the oyster hatcheries do is that they uh, create the conditions for, <laughs> for good oyster loving, I guess you could say, uh, which is essentially heating water and feeding, feeding the, the broodstock or the parents well, and then once they um, get the oysters to spawn, then growing those larvae out and so that they're very um, fat and happy, basically, so they feed them very well and uh, get them to a point of oyster seed, which is then what they sell to the oyster growers who will implant them out uh, in various places in, the, in, in different embayments and grow them to market size. So oyster hatcheries exist to help oyster larvae survive to the point where they can be seeded by oyster growers. Hatcheries are important because larval survival in the wild is not only more difficult, but also more variable. If you're an oyster grower relying on wild larvae, you may have some years where things are easy and some where things are hard. Hatcheries help make everything, if not easy, a lot easier and a lot more steady. Hatcheries also provide an opportunity for empirical testing of larval growth strategies. Basically, they've been buffering the water at the Whiskey Creek Hatchery, and they're now doing this at the Taylor's Hatchery as well, which is up in Washington State and in, in Quilcene on Puget Sound. And uh, what the Whiskey Creek Hatchery has done is they were sort of trying to figure out what, how much buffering they need. And, and essentially what they're doing is adding cal uh, sodium carbonate into the incoming water, which elevates the saturation state, and uh, trying to figure out what sort of the optimal level was to get that saturation state to that would make the oysters happy during this first sort of period of life. In the, in the work, what we did was lay out a, a very well-known equation for kinetics and the rate of calcium carbonate can form. And so in doing that and then putting into that equation the rates at which the organisms are building shell, we can solve for what the rate constant in that equation would be. And by doing that, then we can look at how that rate constant changes based on the chemistry because the rate is dependent on the saturation state. So Whiskey Creek has been taking a trial and error approach to determining what makes oyster larvae happy. But now Dr. Waldbusser has provided research allowing them to predict what will make those larvae happy. 
essentially, Dr. Waldbusser is taking the error out of trial and error. The value of Dr. Waldbusser's work really cannot be overstated. To start with, if the oyster industry can more easily produce a greater number of surviving larvae, there are profound commercial benefits. There was a report that came out, I think six months ago or so, that you know it's, it's something on an order of 10 to 14 time magnification for the investment that are made into basic research and the economic gains that come out of that. And so the oyster industry through this problem out here in the Northwest, some of the numbers that economists have estimated, the loss of seed or the loss of production of oyster seed has cost the industry about $110 million uh, since, since around 2007 or so. And so that is a fraction of the kind of money that we use to do this kind of research, that we're, we're helping them to, um, you know, adapt and modify and, and do things differently. Oysters, besides being friendly. And, and delicious. Forrest, do you really like oysters? Um, no, not, no, I don't, not really. <laughs> I didn't think so. Anyhow, oysters, aside being friendly and delicious, provide a lot of other benefits. For example, not only can the acidity of the surrounding water impact oysters, but oysters can also impact acidity. One of the things I've, I've been very interested in is understanding how shells cycle in the environment, particularly in places where there's lots of bivalves. And we know that many species of bivalves are very gregarious, and so they like to be around other bivalves. Um, and oysters are a classic example of this. They, they selectively pick habitat that has oyster shell in it and thus end up forming oyster reefs. So there's a, you know, we don't really know a whole lot about how those shells, how long they stay there and how long they last. And some of the work I've been doing previously and some of my colleagues were sort of finding that the shells initially break down fairly quickly where they release a fair bit of calcium carbonate back into the water. Um, and so what they're doing is essentially acting as a capacitor in some way. So you don't get something for nothing because they're taking the calcium and the carbonate out of the water, which fundamentally is, is sort of makes the conditions worse in the surrounding area. But if you have this massive shell, they're taking uh, that shell out, depositing into this environment, and they're also generating uh, essentially, we call them biodeposits, but it's essentially oyster poop which uh, supports a lot of microbial life and a lot of CO2 generation. And so the fact that you have these biodeposits where you're generating a lot of CO2 that's in close association with these shells gives you an opportunity to actually regenerate that alkalinity and put some of that alkalinity back into the environment, back into the water, which could either create sort of localized conditions that are more favorable for the oysters living there or uh, in some cases, and what we think may have happened in Chesapeake Bay before um, in, the, in the pre-colonial times, actually affected the, the alkalinity of the bay in some major way. And so it's, they, they're not actually generating the alkalinity for nothing, but they're holding it and working as a capacitor does in terms of leaking it out more slowly and keeping it sort of in a more constrained environment and perhaps leaking out more when, when, when conditions are more acidic. Now that doesn't mean we can just count on oysters to fix ocean acidification. After all, oyster populations have been burdened with hundreds of years of overharvesting, pollution, and disease. The ability of the oyster population in the Chesapeake Bay to alkanate the water, according to Dr. Waldbusser, 
used to be a hundred times greater than it is now. It's really too bad that we don't have that kind of an oyster population now because alkalination is just one of a number of ecological benefits provided by oysters. There's lots of great examples of what we what we call ecosystem services that oysters provide. Um, because they're very proficient filter feeders, they tend to pull a lot of the organic matter and the primary productions in the water column out of the water and they concentrate it and then get that to the sediment more quickly. And that does a couple of things. One is it clarifies the water, and so it makes light penetration uh, greater, and so it provides better opportunities for seagrasses to thrive, which are important habitats as well. The other thing it does is it gets that light down to the sediment surface, where then the nutrients that would be regenerated from that organic matter can get trapped uh, by by plankton that live at the sediment sediment water interface. And so it's getting light down to that sediment level so you have primary production that's actually trapping some of the nutrients that would go back into the water column and generate more phytoplankton. The other aspect is just habitat and oyster reefs are uh, incredibly important habitat for lots of uh, estuarine organisms. So Dr. Waldbusser's work will help make oyster production more cost-effective both now and especially as acidification increases in the future. That in turn could also allow greater reintroduction efforts for oysters that could provide great environmental benefits. On a more fundamental level though, Dr. Waldbusser's work could do something incredibly important. It could help people eat. Yeah, so so it's it really varies and you know for for the US oysters are kind of a I mean there's they're you know it's a significant monetary industry but it's not a major component of people's diets. Um, France, for example, the prices you pay for oysters are quite higher because the French believe that they're, you know, they really enjoy oysters. It's a real treat and it's a, it's a, it's a gourmet dish for them. But there are other places around the world, uh, in third world countries in particular, where oysters and shellfish and mollusks are really important and major components of people's diets. And so, um, for us here to have industry and be able to supplement kind of basically or, or increase what would be there otherwise for consumption, there are many places in the world that just don't have that luxury. And, and the problems that oysters faced in this country in terms of pollution and the harvesting, are, they're, are, those populations are under those similar strains in other countries that, that don't have other forms of protein production. And so there's lots of food security issues that go along with um, these potential ocean acidification problems um, in other parts of the world. To be clear, Dr. Waldbusser didn't and wasn't arguing that his work will allow the masses to be fed. Rather, he was pointing out that the increasing ocean acidification and the depletion of wild oyster populations will impact less industrialized nations more so than ours. Right. That's because those nations might depend more on oysters for basic sustenance than does the U.S., Additionally, those countries might not be able to subsidize their available oyster resources with hatchery-raised stock like we can do here. However, the implementation of Dr. Waldbusser's research provides a useful tool that promotes the growth of a protein source that is not very energy intensive. That could be incredibly important. However, it's not all peaches and cream. Or, or peaches and oysters. Peaches and oysters sounds terrible. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> but it's not all peaches and oysters, as Forrest says. It is not safe to assume that just because things might turn out well, things will turn out well. Unfortunately, that's true. And I'll probably start saying peaches and oysters. 
I definitely will. <laughs> but thanks to the work of Dr. Waldbusser and many, many others, we both know how important oysters are for a healthy environment, and we know better ways to grow oysters to introduce to the wild. However, that doesn't mean that we can scarf down oyster after oyster after oyster without any worries. Most of the oyster industry in the Northwest is really driven by aquaculture, and so they're, again, the Pacific oysters that are cultivated specifically for market. But I do think it's an important issue, and there is, from what I understand, increasing demand for oysters. Uh, they're starting to become, I think, more of a, of a cosmopolitan type of, of thing that people are looking for. And so, you know, in conjunction with um, the, the industry production of, of oysters, we need to be conscientious of and try to find places where we can have oyster reserves, and there are places like those already set up um, out here and, in, uh, and on the East Coast where those oyster beds, either because they're in areas that don't allow harvesting because of health impacts, and so, um, you know, either pollution is too bad that you would want to eat the oysters, or those areas have been dedicated to be put aside because they're important habitat. You know, those are, those are important um, aspects to to helping to get oysters to come back. And so, um, so I eat them, but I eat them with, a, I guess I, I'm conscientious of where they're coming from and, and um, not eating too many, I guess. So just like you might decide to eat mahi-mahi instead of rockfish, or you might choose to eat seasonal local-grown produce rather than imported out-of-season goods, so too you might think about where the oyster you're eating is coming from. There is one other issue to be worried about, however. We've talked about the environmental, humanitarian, and commercial value of Dr. Waldbusser's work, and hopefully it's clear just how high that value is. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, however, mean that Dr. Waldbusser finds it easy to get money to do his work. That's right. Funding in the sciences, especially for basic science, can be difficult at best. We're, we're funded by the National Science Foundation and Oregon Sea Grant to do this work, and the National Science Foundation in particular generally funds, uh, you know, basic research to try to understand fundamental processes and, and basic scientific questions. And so what we've been able to do is sort of merge those two perspectives and do what I think is good basic research on how ocean acidification affects um, commercial, commercially important bivalves and, and ecologically important bivalves, but then also translate some of that research into information that's useful for industry um, because the industry here has had to learn how to adapt very quickly and so we've been working very closely with them and then Oregon Sea Grant typically funds a lot of research to work with stakeholders and so we've, we're doing work, uh, more work on oysters with them as well um, and more directly with, with, um, with, with the oyster industry essentially. I think right now it's a very challenging time for all of us who are um, who do basic and applied research and are trying to get funding to do this work and it's I think it's often uh, it's an, it tends to sometimes be an easy target because it's expensive and it's hard to see the um, utility of it at times but it's a foundation I think for for our country and our the technological advances that we've made and we have to continue to invest in those um, in, in both the, the basic and applied research which supports the work that we're doing, um, in particular, again, places like National Science Foundation and Sea Grants around the country, but then also the training of graduate students who are the future scientists uh, who are going to work on these problems and have to, to understand these impacts um, uh, in, in the years coming. On that note, we want to thank the National Science Foundation, the Oregon Sea Grant, Dr. Waldbusser, and Oysters. Especially the oysters. Always the oysters. <laughs> Always. That's all we have here on the Grok Science Show. 
You can find this episode of the Grok Science Show, as well as hundreds more, on the Public Radio Exchange Archive.org, iTunes, and our own webpage, groks.net. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. For the Grok Science Show, and for Charles Lee, Joanna Rowan Franklin, I'm Forrest Goonan. And I'm Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening.